edition of the Football Theory Podcast. My name is Grant McAllier. I have alongside with me, as always, my co-host, my friend, Parker Fleming. We are three weeks away from TCU football. Three weeks? Three week? Three weeks? Yeah, it's happening. Three, three, three weeks, weekends, yeah. yeah. Um, oh my gosh, I'm so excited for the tweet I get to post tomorrow. Ooh, keep your eyes out, folks. That's at Stats of War on it's Twitter. A, I'm, it's a jersey. It's a jersey number. It's going to be great. Um yeah, man, I'm 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 very excited for football. Getting ready, I feel like I'm getting back into the swing of things. We've been, you know, cranking over on that uh, Bet US show, doing the doing the previews, and it's fun to be on video. They sent me Grant. You can see me in 60 FPS right now. Uh, this is this is me in my full glory. So, um, yeah, how are how are you? Are you how are you gearing up for for the um, season? Okay. Is Max is Max Doggin doing his uh, doing his training reps? How's his training camp going? He is. He, uh, you know what he. Um... He, he's doing really well. The, the poor guy's been in his kennel a lot. It's it's the first day of school today. Uh, and mm-hmm. as I work for a school district, uh, I've been kind of running the roads, been a little busy, but uh, he, he is getting ready. I, I need to order him. I'm glad you mentioned that. I need to order him a jersey for the season. Uh, I know he'll hate it, but I'm going to make him take at least one picture in it. So uh, Honestly, you could do a jersey. You could do a, a tasteful bandana. Uh, uh-huh. We probably do that a little bit too. So I, I think there's any number How of things many- that you could do. How many times do you think the phrase "tasteful bandana" has ever been said? Uh, I do. I own a poodle mix. I'm. I'm. You know, oh, I, gotcha. I'm so, okay, it's important to say I rescued him, not not like not like from the street. You know, like we we went through a service and oh, that's so why I, I didn't buy like a designer dog. We have like a poodle mutt, but still, he's little and fluffy, and sometimes I, he gets dressed I, up. Dude, it happens. I, listen, I adopted mine, but like. My parents have a cockapoo that they bought, and I love that dog. So just do whatever, yeah, man. Just don't. Great. Yeah, if you can't adopt it, whatever. Um, that listen. Let me tell you the rabbit hole or the people you don't want to make mad are the adopt don't shop people that are super hardcore. Um, they will come at you. So I am not offering any more opinions. On yeah. Oh yeah. Well, you know. So, so um, well, um, we're gonna we're gonna talk tonight, Grant, to uh, to Cameron Soran, who is uh, a really smart guy. He, I, this did not come up organically, but I was trying to work it in there. I'm pretty sure he is a physics major undergrad who became a lawyer. So if you want to talk about mental capacity and knowing how to think, like he was telling us about his, you know, his process for learning for defense. And I was like, oh yeah, you just like learn how to learn. And so you can learn anything like you're awesome at this. Yeah. It was was really cool. Yeah. uh, Cameron was a delightful uh, interview. Uh, Very smart, uh, very clearly passionate and knowledgeable about, uh, about the subject. First time I talked to him, I know you'd interacted with him before, but uh, I, I would have him back uh, any week to talk to uh, defenses. Um, yeah, he was, he was really, really sharp. Make sure you go follow him. We'll put that in the show notes. Um, Grant, before we do that, is there anything we should talk about? I'm trying to think. Mm, I'm trying to think. I was, to, I was trying to think about any news that's happened. I don't have anything unless you want to talk about Dylan Horton starting at defensive end. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Here's the thing. You just can't believe anything. Right, you just you should not believe anything because there, here's here's Occam's razor on this, right? Like like the the simplest solution is, Kari Coleman is like getting on award lists and stuff, and there is a ton of pressure on him, and he is only a sophomore, and so what GP is doing is talking somebody else up to try and either humble him and discipline him, or to try and get a little heat off him as the season goes, right? Uh, or Kari Coleman's not that good. And he just did well against bad competition last year. And we all know it. And GP and the state media were lying about it. I, I, I think it's the, the first option, not the second option, but either yeah. way, you just got to take things with a grain of salt. Um, if Dylan Horton starts, I, there are receipts, man. 
who there are Kari Coleman tweets everywhere. Um, yeah, it'll be, it'll be great to just do a, do a hall of fame there. My, so my dad will be devastated. Kari Coleman was like the one defensive player last year. He was like, man, this guy's really good. He's very fun. And, and I think, you know, I, I, I don't think that'll be an issue. Um, I will say I, I was, um, it's important to preface this because I don't think we're in competition with like Jeremy and Jeff and the Frogcast. Oh no. I and listen to them. Yeah, they, yeah. they have different information. So like, I can't report on practice because I'm not there. Jeremy's there. Right. So like, go listen to that. He had some really good insights, was talking about stuff. He was kind of hinting at something that I think is important. Uh, and I don't know if he explicitly said it, but he kind of talked about Max Duggan being a little underwhelming in practice. And really what I want to do there is just talk about a big flaw, I think, in the way that Coach P kind of structures his practices is that they are defensive heavy. And so it's good to have your ones on ones and your best on best. But I think that comes at the expense of quarterbacks being able to kind of practice and get in the groove. And, you know, we talk about the air raid and like the magic number of reps. Yeah. And, and if you're having to do that against Trevious Hodges Tomlinson all the time, yes, that's going to increase your level of competition, but also maybe to the detriment of kind of getting a rhythm. So that's just something to keep a pulse on because you think about how many times you've seen, oh, a quarterback's doing great. And it's what, well, their defensive backs are really bad. And so he's practicing against that. Yeah. So one, Duggan and Camp is, you know, doing, practicing against two of the best cornerbacks in the, in the nation pretty regularly. And two, the practices are geared towards the defense. So just take that with a little grain of salt before we start doing anything crazy. Also, just because I'm getting out in front of this BS, Chandler Morris threw an interception practice. So uh, how about, how about that? Max is a much better dog name than Chandler. So uh, I just need to make sure that, that Duggan starts this year. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I, I, I think the way they, they structure practice is defensive heavy. I think that Patterson will always come out of practices talking about how good his defense looks. You know, this player stepped up, this player stepped up. But it's, I think that's also part of the reason, honestly, why the last, what, four years we've been having, if not quarterback controversy, quarterback discussion, because no quarterback is able to stand out as much during fall camp because these practices are defensive heavy. So it just kind of creates this – never ending cycle of, well, is he really going to be the starter? Is he good enough? Whatever. And then you get to the game and, Oh, as it turns out on Saturday, as they perform. So. Yeah. And I, I kind of think to myself of like coach P sitting at home, listening to listen to music, having a little drink at the end of the day and, uh, and laughing about like, which random player am I going to talk up? He's, he's <laughs> got Tom Petty's it's, it's Tom Petty's breakdown and he's just <laughs> sipping like a glass of whiskey. And he's like, Hmm, Kari Coleman. You're going to the wolves. Yeah, uh, I I have no idea what's going on in his head. Um, yeah, okay. Well, that you know that's fun. Go listen to the broadcast because they're doing they're, they're they're talking about camp and stuff, which is really them. interesting. Um, other than that, I think I think we're just in the we're just in the lull. Uh, the the lull. Next week, Grant, we're going to do our TCU offense and defense preview. Like so, kind of the team previews we've been doing. We're going to do TCU, and then next week will be game week, and we're going to talk about Duquesne and learn more about the Atlantic Ten than than we ever wanted to. Um, but other than that, I think I think I don't have anything. Do you have anything? Well, I was just going to say this is a little behind the scenes for the listeners. Uh, if if uh, if you Venmo me a hundred dollars right now. When you're listening to this, I will message you every single way Parker has misspelled Duquesne in text to me. Uh, it is truly remarkable. It's like Wednesday. You know, to spell Wednesday or February, you have to be like Wednesday, February. 
And so I keep going Dus Duskin, but it's Duquesne. And uh, you, you put a W in there one time. I think one time I just said Duckin. <laughs> I think you did. Yeah. We're spoiling it's, it's the. Uh, we're spoiling that. Um, okay. Well, enjoy this interview with Cameron Saran. Really, really smart. Really, really sharp. Loved it. Go check out that uh, article on on the Substack that he wrote. There's diagrams. Makes a lot of sense. Just a really cool way to look at like two of the best defensive minds of our generation are head coaches in the Big 12 right now, and that means. So um, we talk a lot about that. That's really, really interesting. And uh, we will be back uh, next week. Go Frogs. Joining us now is Cameron Soren, uh, one of the internet's premier experts in uh, on defense and all things defense. Um, you might know him from uh, authoring his book, the the Pass Coverage Glossary, or from writing some of the uh, smartest inter uh, not interviews, smartest articles about defense uh, across the internet. Cameron, thanks for joining us. How are you this evening? I am doing well. Happy to be with you. Yeah, we've been we've been trying to make this happen for a little bit, uh, <laughs> which is cool. This this kind of continues our third in our defensive deep dive, you know, we've had Cody Alexander on to talk about kind of the geometry and terminology of defense. We had Vass on to talk about, you know, specifically TCU. And this, this week, I'm, I'm really excited to kind of expand and talk about, you know, the big 12 and talk about uh, Aranda and Patterson and two great defensive minds. Um, Cameron, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? How did you get interested in kind of the mechanics of defense? How did you become uh, you know, how did you say, Hey, I'm going to start, I'm going to write a book about defensive coverages. Okay. Well, that's, that's like two different questions there. Um, the first part, uh, is that around, I want to say, uh, my early to mid twenties, I started getting interested in X's and O's. And so I started going to football conventions and going and talking with coaches, reading playbooks, trying to find every last bit of film I could get my hands on. Uh, trying to absorb all of this different stuff. And then eventually I got to a point where uh, I realized, you know, nobody knew as much or very few people knew as much, let's say, for example, about Nick Saban's pass coverage system as I did. And so then at that point, I started going, well, perhaps I should start writing articles about this stuff and explain this to people. Now, as for the pass coverage glossary, um, it actually initially started as an internal reference guide because I was actually having trouble keeping track of all these different coverage concepts. Like my head, in my head, I'd mix up Seahawk and Steeler and these, these types of ones. And um, so I figured if I was occasionally needing like some sort of reference guide to be able to like go glance at this stuff, um, about halfway through actually creating it, I started going, oh, this actually might be a really good idea for a book. Um, and I, I do have to credit Vast because he was sort of the initial inspiration for me putting together the reference guide because uh, when he was doing his, uh, he made a little, little reference on one of his episodes of Make Me Sense Great Again. So, yeah. Cameron, I, this is kind of a, a meta question here, but when you're putting together that reference guide, you're, you're talking about, you know, the difference between Seahawk and Steeler and all these different terms. I, I always ask this just because I'm curious. Are, are those terms interchangeable between programs or do you just say, hey, this is kind of the overall term people use and we'll just call it Seahawk for this purpose? Great question. Okay. So when I am using the terms Seahawk and Steeler, that's out of the Nick Saban coverage system. And that's the most ubiquitous. That's the most widely used. It's sort of the lingua franca of the college football world, at least in terms of defenses. Um, 
I do include different synonyms uh, for these different pass coverages, like based on the system that you go with. So like um, what Nick Saban calls stubby, Gary Patterson calls special, which, you know, Venables calls lock, and then you can go over to this other system. They call it mini, and it's all the same damn thing. Um, but that's one of the, I guess, more important things is to provide those synonyms and make sure everybody's on the same page in terms of when somebody says mod or stubby or something else like that, that you understand it's got this translation over into these other systems. Yeah. Yes, it does. As someone who like looks at really in-depth college football defensive scheme Twitter from afar, uh, it's always interesting to be like, oh, well, they're running, I'm not going to make up terminology here, and everyone knows exactly what that means. So it makes sense that the lingua franca there being Saban, it, it, considering what he's done in Alabama, that, that makes a whole lot of sense. I'm always just curious about that. Yeah, I mean, the, the reality of it all is that uh, you have as much success as uh, he has had at Alabama. Um, you are going to get a lot of individuals who are going to uh, copy or try to use that particular system. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I think the terminology is really interesting. You know, you, you, there's, I guess we'll end up talking about this a little bit more specific, but like, you know, some people will call a player Jack and some people will call it cowboy and some people will call it star. And it's like, at some point we're just doing a branding exercise. Like it's all, it's all the same thing. Um, when you're, when you're going to learn and you're learning about these terminologies, Cameron, uh, obviously you're watching film, obviously you're watching clinics, obviously you're talking to people. What, what have you found as kind of your learning process for defense? Maybe um, as you answer this, thinking about, you know, a fan who wants to dive into that next level, but isn't ready to, you know, pad 40 games a week or anything crazy? Um, okay. Uh, that's a good question. And uh, my honest, I've gotten this question numerous different times from people who are like, hey, I would like to learn more um, about defense generally or sometimes football generally. And I, I have a sort of like, instinctual response, well, you should read myself and the free articles that Cody Alexander had as a starting point to like learn some of this base terminology and stuff like that and understand these general concepts. And then if, once you've sort of got that base foundation, listening to uh, Bass, Make Defense Great Again podcast is more that intermediate to advanced level. Um, you want to make sure you got that foundation. Otherwise, a lot of that stuff is going to go over your head. Um, but one of the um, other ones is Matt Bowen, uh, a number of years back, did this NFL 101 series. It's a series of articles, um, and he just goes over, like, here's the route tree, and here's these base pass combinations. Here's this, like, you know, here's what green four is, or green two is, all these different types of NFL concepts. And I thought that series was very helpful if you're just starting out and wanting to learn uh, the basics there, because now you're going to understand when somebody says a seven route, what the reference is. Yeah, that's, that makes a whole lot of sense. Um, one other thing that we like to, or I say we, I don't want to use the world we and speak for Parker, but one thing that I enjoy doing is learning about people's processes when they when they do watch games. I know SEC Stack Hat has his own thing. Bass has his own thing. Parker has graph paper stacked across it, wherever it is he's living right now. Um, what's your process when you, when you watch a game? Are you talking watching it casually or like really, really studying it to like break down the game? Oh, let's, let's do both. Yeah. Okay. So when I'm watching a game casually, um, my 
the first thing I tend to look at is um, what's happening on the line of scrimmage. That is, who's pushing who. And then the secondary thing that my brain is looking for is open spots of green grass on the defensive side of the ball. Um, those are the two primary things that my brain tends to focus on because if you're winning on the line of scrimmage, it tends to mean you're going to win the game. And those open spots of green grass on the defensive side tells me where the ball is likely to end up going in terms of the quarterback throwing it. So that's, that's you know, me watching casually, real time. That's what's going on. When I sit down to really uh, break down a game in thorough detail, like pull up the all 22 and all of that. Um, so trying to figure out exactly what a defense is doing all the time is a little bit hard because it's dictated in so many ways by the offensive formation and play call. They might want to do a certain thing, but I don't know. The, the offense gets in four wide, and so they can't really do that original thing that they were thinking of. Um, so what I do is I do a sort of an initial pass where I uh, write down, you know, generally what each uh, side of the ball was doing, like the general concept, like inside zone bubble. And that's, that's it for the offensive concept. Um, and once I've gone through the entire game like that, then I go look at where are there certain patterns? Okay, am I seeing tight front and quarters combined like a bunch of different times in this game? So there's like this instance of a, an LSU game where it came up like 21 times uh, where Dave Arado just says, Tight front and quarters, it's all lined up. And it's like, okay, well, that, that was clearly a big part of the game plan. Um, and so you can sort of skirt over a little bit of that because you're like, okay, yeah, that, that was just a big space call. And then focus more on things like, okay, what, what did he run on third down? Or at least third and passing, you know, with the actual passing down, like third and four plus, because that might be like his exotic, you know, blitz package at that point. Um, and you just take your time with those types of sort of special plays, like a two-point play or down at the goal line, because that's when people start pulling out their bag of tricks, both on the offensive side of the ball and the defensive side of the ball. But yeah, that's generally how I end up doing it. Um, and by the time I'm done, that is, if I know the system well, it doesn't take too long for me to pad an entire game. But if it's something I'm not familiar with, like just something random, like uh, Colorado Wazoo, that will take me like forever. I mean, we're talking like if I had an entire game, it would take like 20 hours. On the other hand, if I'm familiar with the defense, such as like, um, let's say it's Cal versus uh, Mario Cristobal or uh, Oregon's offense, I'm familiar with both of those, so that probably only takes like four hours. Um, the level of familiarity is very key. Anyone who tells you that, you know, that, that doesn't matter, I think it's just fooling you. And I wonder if, if, if this is true, correct me if this is wrong, Cameron, but it seems like the people who are doing defense best in college football are, are often the ones that have the most coherent system. And so is it easier to kind of chat, chart and understand a good defense rather than chart and understand a bad defense? Yes, it is unquestionably easier because, um, as you say, they're, they're more coherent, but also, um, uh, everyone is on a good defense is doing their job properly. A lot of the time when you pull off a bad defense, you're left wondering, well, who's supposed to cover that guy? He was left uncovered, and I'm not sure which guy was supposed to be doing it. 
but you have, have no such concerns when you pull up like Clemson. You can see, obviously, who is supposed to cover that guy. I mean, you may not have done his job, but hey, that's who is supposed to do it when there are breakdowns. So, yes, it's unquestionably way easier um, uh, to chart a good defense than a bad one. I've never charted a bad one for a reason because it, it's not fun. Uh, this I don't want to get too into the weeds. I just have one question based off something you said, and then and then we can move on. But um, this term always has intrigued me based on the way that people use it. But you use the term exotic blitz package. I, I feel like at this point, all it's like we've run out of the formations of blitz packages, right? We've, we've extinguished a limit. What do you define as an exotic blitz package versus a standard blitz package? Oh. Um. I know that's I general. Know. It's just that that phrase has always amused me, and that's why I'm curious. Um, that, I mean, that's that's actually a fair question. Um, what I'd say is, um, when the defense obviously does not care about the offense potentially running the ball, gotcha. such as when the defense comes out with literally one defensive lineman, and then everyone else is linebackers and defensive backs. And the whole point is you don't know which guy's going to come from where and who's going to be dropping into coverage. That would be an example of what I describe as an exotic blitz package. It's just basically like the defense is like, yeah, even if you run the drop play, we don't care. Gotcha. Gotcha. Makes sense. I just heard that phrase a lot. I'm like, okay, like, is it just, it looks weird or is it there like a specific schematic element to it? But thank you. That, that always been curious. Other people may have different definitions, but that's what I think of. Um, when I, I'm using the term. Yeah, so I, I think that's probably a good launching point just to kind of say, let's let's talk about this article that you wrote for, for the newsletter today and kind of let's, let's talk about the comparison between Aranda and Patterson. So um, I think the, the bigger question uh, we start there is not necessarily what's the difference between Dave Aranda and, and Gary Patterson, Cameron. It's why do people respect Dave Aranda and Gary Patterson as defensive minds in your estimation? Okay. When it comes to um, Gary Patterson, first and foremost, it is because he has been there, done that, faced every single different type of offense, whatever type for like over 20 years and still been successful. Sometimes he'll have, you know, not as great years, but then he'll immediately bounce back. He always seems to keep finding solutions. And so people gravitated to that really early on, I think within his first five years, because there wasn't a single problem that could ever set him back for longer than a year. He always seemed to be able to come back and come up with a solution. Um, and his system is remarkably flexible. It allows him to be able to come up with solutions all the time. When it comes to Dave Aranda, um, why do people uh, gravitate towards this system? Because it's really um, straightforward to explain. So in terms of one, I guess, comprehending it yourself as a coach and then explaining the system to a player, it's got this very high level of ease and a high degree of effectiveness because every single one of these concepts is like thoroughly thought out um, and it's sort of designed so that it's ready to teach. Um, I think, um, uh, gosh, who is it? The coach names did a, a, a course on uh, uh, Dave Aranda defense, like sort of simplified for the high school level. 
And I think it sort of like illustrates why people are attracted to David Rodnick. It's like you can have this seemingly super complicated defense that can be run at a high school level, which is cool. So that's one of the main things I think. Yeah, no, that makes a ton of sense. Um, and I, I mean, I used to cover high school football and I know those coaches would just kill to be able to instill a defense as, as easily as possible to guys, you know, that you only have for, for a little while and are also um, high school kids who can be fickle. Um, I want to ask you this, and, and I don't want to give away anything or, or, or kind of, you know, just make you rehash the article, but you mentioned, you know, Gary calls his defense a certain way, or uh, Aranda calls his defense a certain way. Other than the way they call it, what are the kind of the underlying principles and sort of the the mindset that those defenses have? Not like, oh, well, Gary runs a 4 2 but like what, what principles um, are those defenses built off of? Uh, well, they both share some similar principles. But the main thing that I think of when I think of Gary Patterson's defense is I want the ability to be able to call anything at any time. So if I run into a particular problem where I see a particular thing or I want to be able to run a particular blitz, I have the ability to communicate that and send that in um, without my players not necessarily having to like go to the sideline and learn a whole new play. You can sort of signal everything out individually to all of the players um, and get them in those spots. That's the main underlying principle when I think about Gary Patterson's defense. It's less like you know, the personnel 425, or I guess the, the starting too high structure, because he'll roll into single high at times. It's more the flexibility to be able to do whatever it is you want. When you're talking about sort of like how Dave Aranda comes at the play calling thing, uh, it's more sort of ease uh, for the players to understand. So generally the way it works is like the first word, I'm, I'm not going to use the exact terminology because I don't want to get into that. But the first word basically indicates the front and possibly also the blitz. So, you know, he could say rock and that just means an overfront. But then he could say lava and that's, okay, we're going to run this particular blitz out of an overfront. Um, just, you know, somewhat related words. And then the next word tells you the coverage. So for all these players, like every single, you, you hear rock, you're like, yeah, okay, over five. And then when you hear the coverage, it's like, I don't know, four. Okay, well, I know a quarter. So it makes it very simple because you only have to communicate two things. And even when you're going against um, up-tempo, no huddle offenses, well, Dave's only got to get out two things in order to communicate the defense. That's that's going to be really helpful in that situation. And it allows players to go really, really fast because if you've gone through an entire season of knowing rock and then lava and then, I don't know, ember and volcano, which all these ones could be there, that just becomes easy when Dave says, okay, remember we were, we were running volcano fire? Well, now we're going to run volcano ash. We're going to modify the coverage thing a little bit here for this particular game. And for the players, it's like, Okay, we we already understand what that original uh, blitz was, so okay, it's easy enough. Can I ask oh. names for play call? That was <laughs> say, that, those are, that's awesome. I love that system. Can I can I toss a, a metaphor? Maybe it's an analogy. I don't know. Um, at you that that I think might be apt. Um, Gary Patterson's defense. I've been reading a bunch of sci-fi lately, so get ready for this. Gary Patterson's defense is, is like a spaceship, right? Like a, a, a intergalactic, an intergalactic spaceship 
where we want modularity. We have this fixed amount of resources. And what we want to be able to do is reconfigure this. You know, we want to be able to take pods and move them around or reuse resources, whatever, to survive the spaceship, this interstellar journey. Whereas Dave Aranda is like a guy who just brought the biggest tool back. And so Patterson is saying, I want to customize this one thing and move it around, not to compare the grandiosity of a spaceship with a tool bag to compare those two qualities. But Patterson is saying, I want to be able to customize the fixed resources that I have. I'm not running personnel on and off. I'm not changing the base structure. Whereas Aranda is saying, any question that you have for me, I, I brought an answer already. Okay. Um, How fair is that? <laughs> um, I would say with regard to Patterson that the, your analogy there is spot on. Yeah, it's like, I want to be able to be do whatever. I want to be able to reconfigure things um, any way I want. That's absolutely a spot on metaphor. With regards to Dave Aranda, it's not like, I wouldn't say it's like I brought the biggest toolbox. It's like, I brought maybe not the biggest toolbox, but every single tool in there is yeah. like awesome. Yeah. Uh, so may maybe I don't have, you know, as many tools as you, but every single tool I have kicks butt. That's how I think of David Rock. Yeah. This, this playbook actually is not as big as I think a lot of people sort of have this impression in their head. Like, oh, he's got to have a ton of different plays. I'm like, really not, not as big as you might think. Yeah. Yeah. Parker, do you have something? Or? No, no, go ahead, please. Okay. Sorry. I think we just got the night show there, but uh, so, so you mentioned tools in, in the arsenal, tools in the toolbox or whatever. For, when you think of college football, those that term tends to be applied to players, right? Like what, what tools does Gary have on defense? What tools does Dave have on defense? What players, what types of players fit best in each of those systems? And, and I guess the question is probably better asked in, in reverse to where, does Gary's system fit a certain type of player better? And, and same question for Dave. Hmm. Outside of five stars will fit into any system, obviously. <laughs> Five-star well, yeah, defensive tackle can play safety for Dave Aranda. You heard it here first. Um, <laughs> yeah, if you, can, if you can get those guys. Um, yeah, just, just win with talent, obviously. Um, I would say – with regard to Gary Patterson's defense, it does require a healthy number of, I guess, um, I, I call them quasi-linebackers. Um, that, that's just my terminology for it. And it's basically somebody who's straddling the line between linebacker and safety. Like, they're not 250, 6'4". No, no, no. They're about, like, 230 maybe like six two and they could kind of play in either role and we're just moving around which one they're ultimately going to be in. That seems to be the, the player that seems most integral to making Gary's defense work is having those guys who can sort of be in between like that strong safety spot or some guys can call it a nickel or a star. That guy ends up being a bit of a tweener there. Like he's kind of a defensive back, kind of a linebacker. Um, for Dave Aranda, it's changed over time based on the school he's at and the guys they can recruit. So when he was at Wisconsin, it was absolutely critical um, that he have good linebacker play because he had just nothing but a wealth at linebacker at Wisconsin. I mean, 
does he have a bunch of 300-pound defensive linemen at Wisconsin? No, but he's got a ton of guys who are like, you know, over six foot and 240 pounds and can do a lot of different things. So he really went after it with the two, four, five. And then when he went to LSU, he found himself on a roster with a bunch of really large people. And I mean, you know, the 320-pound, six-foot-two, good-luck-trying-to-move-me type of guys. And then he was like, okay, we're going to run. I'm going to use that, and we're going to run a bunch of tight fronts. And there isn't, historically, there hasn't been, like, one position that you sort of leaned on. But if, if we were to say that there is one, I would say it's corner. Because he likes to, um, if, he, if he can't get away with it, basically force those guys, the outside wide receivers, to stay outside and then be able to attack everything else with his safety, either from a quarter's look or from a single high. Um, he basically, I would say that's the one position he probably leans on the most. And when it doesn't work, uh, it tends to go pretty badly. The 2014 Big Ten Championship game is a good example. Yeah. It was, it was a beatdown. Yeah, TCU fans are familiar with that one, considering it arguably kept TCU at the playoff, depending on who you ask. So, not great. Dave apologizes. He, did, he really did not want that to happen. <laughs> Man. Why are we doing it? Why are you making me do that, Grant? Um, yeah, so I, I kind of want to, you know, we, we talked about Patterson a bunch and are pretty familiar with that. And so I, I like having that in relief, but I, I'd love to dive in a little bit to um, Aranda's defense because it is so, uh, you know, kind of consistently excellent. And he has adapted as he's moved from, you know, Hawaii to Wisconsin to LSU to Baylor is, a, you know, he's, he's, he's Willie Nelson, man. He's been everywhere. Um, Baylor this year has some really interesting guys. I think it's interesting you say corner is kind of the linchpin. Raleigh Tejada is is a really good corner and kind of is is playing that role well. I, when when you think about Baylor's defense and Aranda's defense last year, you've got to think about Jalen Petrie, uh, who plays that star position, which to me is kind of also that hybrid linebacker. Like you can put him, you know, anywhere. He can rush, he can play the run, he can cover. I think the stat I looked up on on Jalen Petrie was. Nobody who had more, uh, nobody, uh, let me rephrase this better of players who had at least 50 coverage snaps and at least 50 rushing snaps last year, like, um, run defense snaps. Only mm-hmm. two players had a PFF grade of 80 or better for whatever those are worth. Zaven Collins from, from Tulsa and, and Jalen Petrie, who just kind of is this plug and play. I can go anywhere. How does a guy like that kind of increase the flexibility of Aranda being able to move from kind of the four, four, four down to the three down to even the two down or his crazy one down front? Um, okay. So nickel is a position that on most defenses probably doesn't rank really high as being uh, critical, but it is a position in which if you've got a dude, you can really, really feature them. You can really uh, allow them to go around and wreck half. Um, uh, so, like, as a recent example, Osu Kamora at Notre Dame, okay? They were able to move him around and ask him to do a bunch of different things. And because of that, because he's a threat if he rushes the passer, he's a, actually really good if he drops into coverage. He's really good if he's fitting against the run, which the nickel is typically not someone that's being accounted for by the offensive line. So that can be a terrific thing. Um, it just makes him a wonderful weapon. 
Um, and I don't think it's really confined to necessarily a longest defense um, because I think when you've got a guy like that, um, a, a bunch of different defenses will go out and emphasize. I think of Brent Venables and Dorian O'Daniel, who just was like, this guy's making, it literally was the leading tackler on the team, and he was the nickel. You should, you should, I guess in my head, conceptually, the nickel shouldn't have the most tackles on the yeah. team. That didn't happen. Yeah. But he did. Um, and, and Brent Venables was actually taking a lot of time and energy to scheme around the fact that he was really good at, uh, once he was near a guy, bringing him down. Um, so he took advantage of that. So, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't limit it to, to Dave Aranda. And I wouldn't, you know, exclude Gary Patterson from that either. If he's got a really good dude at strong safety, I would expect Patterson to, you know, sport it, feature it. Yeah, we saw that a little bit with Patterson, the way he used Trevon Merrigan, Ardarius Washington last year, and really the last couple of years. I mean, just kind of trusting, you know, trusting Ardarius a little bit, even as a young guy, to kind of go out and make plays, knowing Merrick would be there at the top or, or wherever to kind of be that safety blanket. Um, I, I do want to ask, too, we were talking about adaptability. Obviously, you mentioned Petrie at Baylor as a player, but Aranda as a coach, certainly, we've said, has gone through conferences and succeeded. He's only been at Baylor for, what, one year? But one what – one year, what what adaptations, adaptations, good Lord, what adaptations has he made coming from the SEC to the Big 12? Have you noticed anything markedly different since he kind of took over for the Bears? No, but I didn't actually expect to in year one, or at least under COVID. Um, I sort of expected him to, I guess, remain re relatively similar to what he had done at Wisconsin and LSU, not to change too much. Um, given the circumstances, like he was just stepping in as head coach and now we're having to deal with global pandemic and the whole nine yards. And he could sort of lean to Ron Roberts, who he's been friends with since 2007. And they, they talk every single off season. They watch film. They've watched film every single off season back since 2007. So they know each other really, really well to just basically say, Ron, go take care of it. Um, you know what I like, you know my stuff. Um, go do that. Um, and then what I'm hoping to see is based on what he has recruited, and it seems like linebacker is a position of emphasis, this year I'm hoping to see, like, here's Dave Aranda's plan for the Big 12. But for 2020, I didn't, I didn't see much of a change. Um, at least that, not me personally. But I didn't expect it, so – yeah, I mean, it, it is, you know, not only is it hard year one, I think I think you and I went a little back and forth, not contentiously, but just kind of talking about, you know, he's he's a great defensive mind, but is he going to be able to kind of implement everything um, year year one? And I think that, you know, they, they had moments where they looked really, really good. I think the Oklahoma game, for instance, but I do think that there are some steps to be made that he would, you know, saying, hey, I'd rather kind of have my guys, I'd rather have a full off season. Um Looking at his defense, and I'll ask the same about Gary Patterson's defense. Before I get, a, I'm going to get another level of specific, I think, after this. But generally, what would you say is uh, like a weakness? And weakness might not be the word, a trade off of the Aranda defense. So Aranda is saying, I've got an answer. I have, you know, a, you know, four really, really good tools with these fronts, and I'm going to employ them in a really good, good manner. What's kind of the trade off with, with that defense potentially? Um, so in a general theoretical sense, and I'm, I'm just speaking as a sort of a broad philosophically, uh, uh, 
perspective. If um, Dave Aranda has not anticipated a problem, he will not have an answer for it in game. And it sometimes comes up and it kicks him in the butt. And um, I think, you know, I, I use Dan Mullen as the, the frequent culprit who uh, will pull out something and Dave's like, oh, crud, I did not see that coming. And then he's going to struggle with it for the rest of the game. Yeah. Um, and you, Dan Mullen used to do this like year after year with Dave Aranda. Um, I'm pretty sure he doesn't – he might not have minded most of the SEC, but I'm pretty sure he really is okay with losing uh, uh, that annual match against Dan Mullen. Um, so that's, that's, I guess, from the general high-level thing. Um, more specifically, um, you know, sort of like what, what's the – Channel weakness going on there. I would say it's really reliant on teaching, but that's something Dave's done a really good job with, at least when it came to come to linebackers. Because in order for these plays to work, you, you actually have to be a good teacher. You have to explain all of this different types of stuff because you're relying on every player understanding exactly what their assignment is and why. And then sometimes breaking the rules and freelancing. Uh, in order to get the most out of it. Um, so that's, that's my answer on the weaknesses for that one. For Gary Patterson's defense, um, the real principal uh, weakness is just its linchpin, which is play calling. If you don't have a – if you screw up the play calling, you're not having a good day, uh, you didn't come in with a good game plan, it's got the potential to be the worst defense out there. There is no bottom on this thing. It will just be terrible. And I think you've seen that at times like, was it the 2007 Oklahoma game? Or is it maybe... I know I know. most recently 2018 Oklahoma game if you watch that defense. Vast Vast mentioned okay, that. that, that, that and we, we yeah, go back that, and you're like, that, oh, oh he's just, what the he's heck off, is man. this? Yeah, he's off. Okay, yeah, 2018, sorry. Um, yeah, that Vast mentioned that game? Okay, all right. Boy, that 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 game must stand out on a lot of our minds, by the way. <laughs> Woo! Because um, that was an example of like, what is Gary doing? Yeah. What is this? Um, and I thought he had a, a pretty pretty competent group of uh, players there, but it was sort of wasted uh, on a really terrible game plan slash uh, play calling thing. Yeah. So, uh, when you uh, you know are have a good game plan. You are playing, uh, delivering play as well. I think it's a wonderful system. But also, if you aren't, there's there's no there's nothing to cover you. There's no sort of insurance or backslide or hedge against that particular problem. Um, it's not like players can really bail you out with that system if you're getting them crappy plays. Yeah. The more you talk about this, the more in love I'm falling with the intergalactic space journey uh, <laughs> metaphor. This is great. I'm going to write an article. It's going to be the awesome. Only one, I can guarantee it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I mean, that's the first thing you went with is like this intergalactic spaceship that can go no modular. And I'm like, Look, well, man, we're gonna have to go somewhere, all right? At some point, humanity's gonna have to. We're not doing this tonight. This is a different. He's like this. Yeah, he's like this all the time. Grant, ask uh, a follow-up well, question. Take me somewhere else. I wanted. To, <laughs> I wanted to follow up with something that you mentioned in your answer about uh, about Dave, and you mentioned in the in the article, which is how much uh, he's invested into learning how to teach. 
What do you mean by that without giving away any state secrets? Because it seems like that's one of his strong suits. Um, so without getting into the details, which I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm reluctant to do for a variety of reasons, um, he spends a lot of time each offseason going to learn from different people from a variety of different backgrounds and sort of sometimes even going to, I guess you could call them clinics, just on teaching and how um, kids and teenagers and young adults learn and how best to sort of implement that as part of the process, as well as some of the, I guess, what uh, a lot of people call culture elements, like we're creating a culture of, I don't know, toughness or something else like that. Um, he spends a lot of time, I guess, devoted to studying and learning that. And the only person that I'm aware of that might surpass him is Bronco Mendenhall, and that man can literally cite you psychological studies. That's how much he's invested on that stuff because, like, he's, he's literally a point to psychological studies. I've seen him do it. Like, it's funny. Um, but yeah, he spends a lot, a lot of, David Ronald spends a lot of time on that one. And I think that it, it sort of ties in with his defense. I mean, one of the things that I think comes out from, or I hope comes out from the article, is that each defense was sort of implemented to fit the person. Gary Patterson is a great play caller. And so he developed a system around him being able to call whatever at any time. And Dave Miranda, he's a great teacher and he's a great planner and he's a great long-term thinker. So he developed a system based on that, like using his strengths. I'm a great long-term thinker, so I'm going to come up with these really good plays that I know are solid in the offseason, and then I'm going to be able to implement them and not have to worry that uh, I've, I've called something stupid in the middle of a game. Um, and it's not to say that, you know, Gary Patterson's not a good game planner or not, doesn't do great work in the offseason or that Dave Aranda doesn't do a good job of adjusting his play calls in the middle of a game. But we're talking about relative differences um, between the coaches because when you're, you're talking about this sort of upper echelon area where you're, you're talking about the, the Nick Sabans, the Venables, the Kirby Smarts, Dave Aranda, Justin Wilcox, and Gary Patterson type level, you're, we're talking about relative strengths. Everybody's good at everything. Uh, it's what they're great at when we're talking about differences. Yeah, I think at the piece you compared Dave to, I always mispronounce his name, but the Roman Emperor, is it Trajan? I think it's Trajan Langdon who played for Trajan. Yeah, Trajan, there you go. It's, uh, someone that would have been great planning a siege back in the uh, back in the old days. You know, so, hey, we're going to plan this out. It may take a month, but we're going to win this battle, and there's really nothing you can do about it. Whereas Gary might be more suited to a, a, a skirmish, if you will. This is my half-baked attempt to – copy Parker's analogy, but Grant uh, took, Grant took different, Latin, different Latin in high stuff. school. And it's very important that, you know, Grant took Latin in high school. I did not take Latin. <laughs> I would have loved to have taken Latin in high school, but they didn't offer it. I, I went, I go down a lot of Wikipedia rabbit holes. That's about it. So actually, um, you know, going with the Trajan thing, that's actually the reason why I go with Trajan in my head is because Trajan was brilliant at planning a campaign. And the way I think of it is a Rhonda would be really great at planning a campaign but when it comes to like, hey, we're in the middle of battle, what do you do? Or like, now it's the time for battle, what do you do? Gary Patterson, he's par excellence at that. I mean, he's great at thinking on his feet and figuring out solutions. Yeah. And, and there have been, a, 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 you know, to talk about trade-offs, there, there have been more than one play that stick out in my mind where Patterson has been, you know, yelling and trying to get 
some get a play in and it hasn't happened and it's results in a broken play touchdown. Um, and that's kind of the trade-off. And, and so like, I, I, you know, I talk about like, man, like Paul Gonzalez should be calling, should be calling some plays like that. I'm worried about Gary Patterson's blood pressure during the game, just because it does rely solely on, can I see what's happening? Can I get it in in time? And every play feels so stressful. And then you see a red on the sidelines and you do get that, you know, you get that sense now that you've said that about like learning Rand is like, Nope, I've done the mental reps. Like I've been here. This is not, this is not, I mean, he's intense obviously and thinking and making choices, but he's like, I've, I, I, I don't do my, my performance is not play to play. It is, it is, you know, game to game and kind of getting ready. Um, Aranda, you kind of talk about these four pillars of the Aranda offense um, where he kind of has this, this three, four front, a three, three, five, um, a, a, a two, four, five, and then a one, five, six. So again, for the uninitiated, that's going to be front to back closest to the ball furthest away and kind of talking about the personnel. So he's going to use, you know, that three, four, when they've got two running backs or two tight ends, something a little heavier. And I need to combat kind of big on big when he switches personnel, what's going to cause him to do that. And is that more of I'm running new players on the field or is that I'm just changing the responsibilities of the players currently on the field? Oh boy. Um, okay. If, if we were good podcast hosts, we would have given you questions in advance, but that's not how we roll. <laughs> no, no, this, no, this is the Gary Patterson podcast. Not. We surprise you at every play. Let it roll. Okay. So what I would say is that when operating out of essentially a three down structure, and like, let's say it's a 3-4 or uh, a 3-3-5. Three, three, Everything is largely the same. And, so, and then the big difference is we've changed who the F is, his field backer. Um, and he'll just use F, even if, you know, he's replaced it with a different person. So for the most part, it remains the same. But when he moves to the 2-4-5, it's actually a more or less a four-down structure. Like he will have is the is the F the is the F the star? Yes. Okay. All right. That's great. So that that's gonna be like Jalen Petrie. He's like, hey, we're we're you're either gonna be on the edge or you're gonna be in coverage or yeah. Okay. Cool. cool. Yeah. The F is essentially what some people would call a nickel. Some people would call a star. In Gary Patterson's system, for strong safety. Um, and so when he goes to a three three five, he's changing out who that person is. It's no longer a true linebacker. It's now a. Uh, I, I would say the, the quasi linebacker is the way I like to put it. Um, sometimes a, a pure, well, sometimes at LSU, sometimes it's more of a pure cover corner guy. Um, but when he goes to the two four five, then it becomes a four down structure type deal. Like he will get into looks that will look would be extremely familiar to every TCU fan. But he's doing it with two defensive linemen. And two defensive linemen are playing the, the tackle spots, like the nose and tackle. And then the outside linebackers are playing the role of defensive ends. They're lining up just a little bit wider than they would if they were had their hand in the dirt, but you know, pretty close and in a two-point stance. And the reason why he has the two-four-five package, as I'm given to understand, is as a result of um, collaboration between himself, Justin Wilcox, Ron Roberts, I think Paige Kalikowski, there was a few others. Um, and they figured out that if they wanted to run all these different types of simulated pressures, they were going to run into a problem in uh, the 335 system. And here's what I mean. If you've called a pressure, let's say, to the passing string, for example, um, and 
one of these individuals is supposed to, I guess, on the opposite side of it, drop into coverage. You originally come up and, hey, the person who's going to drop into coverage opposite this is that linebacker. Well, now they motion, the offense motions across. Well, now you've got a 300-pound defensive end who's supposed to be dropping into the coverage. And that's not only this spot. That, that's, everything's going to go terribly. And so what they decided, I mean, like, they'll work together on this one, if I'm getting to understand, is like, okay, we're going to have both guys be able to drop into coverage. And so if the offense motions, if they do all these fun little gimmicks on us, we're going to be okay coverage-wise. Um, and we'll live with the trade-off of only having two defensive linemen on the field. Maybe we won't be as stout against the run, but at least we'll have that flexibility in terms of running these various different simulated pressures. Um, so that, that's my understanding of how it was original, originated. And the first person to run it, like as a base defense throughout the entire season, was Justin Wilcox at Washington back in 2012. However, it was made famous by Dave Aranda at Wisconsin in 2014 because he ran it a ton and it, they were having a final success up until they ran into the boats off of Ohio State. Crap. We're keep bringing this game up. Um, but that's, that's why those, those particular packages generally exist. So I think of it more towards directed towards personnel sets and then also who he's got on his roster. So the 3 4 package is more directed towards. Uh, 12 personnel, meaning one tight end, two running backs, two wide receivers, and 12 personnel. Uh, so you got one running back, two tight ends, two wide receivers. The 3-3-5 three, three, is directed towards more 10 and 11 personnel. 11 personnel being one running back, one tight end, three wide receivers, 10 personnel being one running back, four wide receivers. And the whole difference is whether he's going to run 3-3-5 as opposed to 2-4-5 as who's got on the roster, and then whether he wants to get into a three-down look or a four-down look. Now, when he goes with the one defensive lineman on the field, and then we just run with a mixture of linebackers and defensive backs, in at least recent history, he has only run that on third and passing or second and really long. Like, I don't know, they, they fumbled the snap, and now it's second and like 18. Then he'll run that package out. That's pretty much about the only time he does. But it gives him uh, a wide variety of options in terms of who to send and who to drop into coverage. And if he's able to pick up tendencies in terms of the offense's uh, protection, like where they're going to have the slide and where they're going to have, I guess, essentially the man side, that can be a very big deal. Because if you get sometimes the offensive line to literally waste two guys um, like doing nothing and then be sending guys opposite, you know, to overwhelm the other side of the protection scheme, uh, which can make a big, huge difference. Is that quarterbacks don't like that? No, I bet not. Um, I wanted to ask too, and, and this, this, I don't want to divert or anything, but I, I'm curious. You mentioned, you know, Aranda picked up some stuff from Wilcox uh, when he was at Washington, or certainly at least improved upon it. Can you trace? the sort of defensive lineages between Patterson and, and uh, Aranda and, and kind of what have they, what I, I don't, I'm going to make a go through and say who originated each sort of scheme or concept, but is there any previous coaches that, that they sort of resemble or, or at this point, are they so entrenched in what they've done that it's kind of created their own thing? Okay. So with regard to Aranda and, and maybe I just haven't made this clear, the Aranda defense, I don't think of it as like just Aranda's. I think of it as a collaboration that occurred between 
at least three different coaches and possibly more. And I just don't, I, I can't like put these guys under oath and ask them like who was in the room and who did you call and who did you talk to? Um, but Justin Wilcox, uh, Dave Aranda and Ron Roberts. So Dave Aranda worked uh, for Ron Roberts for a single year at Delta State back in 2007. And they've remained close ever since. And they talk ball every offseason in great detail. When Dave Aranda went to Hawaii, he was in the same conference as Justin Wilcox, and they started chatting with each other. And, of course, Wilcox, you know, his defensive line coach at the time is Pete Kalikowski, so, of course, he's talking to him about all this stuff. And there may have been other people involved. And they ended up coming up with pretty, I want to say, a similar set of packages, similar sets of plays um, as a result. Um, Like, when you pull up, Cal's defense, you know, there's not so many plays that you are going to see uh, that doesn't exist on Baylor's, I guess, you know, play call sheet as well. They, they might be emphasizing, like, we're going to run more 2-4-5 stuff as opposed to Baylor running maybe 3-3-5, three, three, but they're going to have similar items there. Um, so I guess in my mind, I think of it as this collaboration between a, a group of coaches. Um and that's really its origin story is he, you know, all of them had different influences and then, but they all of them working together kind of created something unique. Gary Patterson, uh, my understanding is that um, back when he was at New Mexico, it was just sort of a, why don't we just divide these two items up and it grew from there. That is to say, let's just divide up what we're telling the five defensive backs and let's just divide up what we're telling the four defensive linemen and two linebackers. Uh, and that it was just like a little starting point, but then they, Gary Patterson started figuring out little by little over time, like, Oh my gosh, I can do all these different things. If I'm just telling the front stuff, because they don't need to worry about whatever the coverage is, uh, at least not the whole, all the details. And then I can communicate all this stuff to the defensive backs, coverage-wise, I know it can be kind of complicated, but I don't have the front guys don't have to hear about it. They don't really care, and so it's sort of morphed over time from that original concept. Um, as for where he got that idea to like split things up, I actually don't know. Um, it may have just been you know his his own original idea, but my understanding is it was just that little spark. And then it slowly started growing from there. And him in collaboration with other uh, coaches he was working with started going, oh, crud, we, you know what we can do? We can, we can call three guys on, on one side to a whole slate like this. Oh, yeah, that's great. We can do that because the coverage guys don't need to hear it. They don't care. That kind of thing. I mean, it just was uh, more organic than I think uh, – some people might want to believe, like, oh, we got Gary Patterson just sat down one time and was in a chair and fell out of it and was like, I got an idea. Yeah, it was a little more organic. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't, uh, oh, since since we're going back to the old days, it wasn't a, uh, it wasn't a eureka moment where he springs out of a bathtub and goes running through the streets of, you know, uh, wherever New Mexico is. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. I, I think I have maybe two more questions and then whatever Grant has, but we'll see, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I, I could go down a million rabbit trails. So my first question is a little bit bigger picture and pivoting. And then I think my second one's kind of general. So I'm okay with that. So my first question is, 
we've gone this whole time. We've talked about big 12 defenses and we've talked about Justin Wilcox and by association largely with, with Dave Aranda. Um, and that's interesting because TCU plays Cal this fall. Uh, so my, my, my first question there is we haven't talked about Matt Campbell at all. And, and Cameron, I don't think that I've seen you mention Matt Campbell at all. So can I ask a question that might sound pointed or leading and I don't mean it to be, um, do you consider him to be a, 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 you know, capital D capital N defensive mind? Do you consider him to be someone who successfully implements, uh, you know, a, a tight front system that's worked elsewhere, or is he a defensive innovator, uh, as far as his success in the big 12? Or have you just not watched the book ton of Iowa state and you don't really care that, that that's also an option too. <laughs> so, I have a general understanding of what Iowa State is doing in terms of their various different fronts, how they're uh, fitting, you know, this guy running a heavy technique and so on and so forth, you know, running this 505 or 404, so on and so forth. But I don't feel like I've got a total grasp on it. And I don't, therefore, do not want to comment acting like I know a lot more than I really do. Um, And that's the reason why I haven't talked about him as much. Because I'm just trying to like, uh, I don't want to like speak outside of my level of expertise. However, um, his whole, okay, let me walk this back. So free safety was a concept that had existed for a period of time, but it was more of like a third down thing. Yeah. Um, Like you just run it on third and like long and that's just running it to just like, cover up everything vertically. So it existed. His real innovation was basically going, okay, we can actually take this. This is the original like three down, three safety, which might have been like, okay, we're going to only run this on third and ten. We're going to run this as a base defense. And that was an absolutely brilliant move. Um, but in terms of like all the fun little details of how that system works, I'm not an expert. I, I've got a general understanding but um, I don't want to, I don't want to overrepresent my level of knowledge. Yeah. Fair enough. Uh, then I'm going to ask you this and you can give me the same answer if, if you don't have the same depth of knowledge, but uh, Alex Grinch at Oklahoma, I, he seems to be a guy that is highly regarded. He certainly has turned defenses around, but it always also does seem like he'll have a couple games where he, his defenses will get, I don't want to use the term exploited, but certainly won't perform up to par. I mean, we saw Kansas state uh, and Iowa state last year. Um, kind of what does he do conceptually and, and, and what kind of makes him a good coordinator or, or perhaps any, uh, you know, glaring, or, or, you know, if not glaring, subtle holes to kind of exploit? Okay. Alex Grinch runs principally out of a three-down system but likes to get into a bunch of four-down type walks. Um, and he uh, will sort of use that to, I guess, try to get the matchups he wants and um, certain, uh, you know, blitzes and pressure, simulated pressures, uh, and also certain run fits the way he kind of wants. Um, that's sort of like generally broad level conceptually what uh, he's been good at. And in terms of um, him having, you know, games where he occasionally lapses, uh, I think that's just going to happen sometimes as any defensive line in the Big 12. Um, I just don't, I think it's really, really hard to run through an entire slate with a big 12 and not have at least one game where you kind of flubbed it defensively. Um, 
I think it's just statistically like you're in trouble. Um, so I don't, I don't sort of consider it that way, but he um, has done a very good job at turning around two different items for Oklahoma's defense. First is just basic coverage technique. Um, a lot of the time when uh, I used to watch Oklahoma before we got there, a lot of the time the defensive backs did not look like they knew the proper footwork, basically. Um, and I don't know what, what the cause of that was. I mean, I can speculate, but I don't really know. Um, or, or basic te techniques sometimes. And I'm, you know, that was what it was. But also uh, implementing a culture uh, really centered around good tackling. Um, and that can make such a world of difference uh, in the Big 12. Because sometimes literally it is, hey, if this guy makes a tackle, it's a two-yard game. And if he slips out, it's going for 20. So implementing that culture of good tackling, which he did uh, quite well at Wazoo, I think has been really instrumental for Oklahoma uh, going forward. Uh, it, it just sounds like non-scheme, like non-intelligent, like I'm going to emphasize tackling technique. But I think it's really, really important for the schemes that he's facing. Yeah, I mean, since Alex Grinch has gotten there, uh, Radley Hines has not been stiff barned by Michael Collins. So that's a win. <laughs> that's real inside. That's right. That one's never dying. Long live Mike Collins. Um, okay, Cameron, I think my last question here then is kind of a uh, bigger picture about kind of how these defensive guys think about their opponents. And so obviously, uh, you know, Patterson knows I'm going to play Aranda. I'm going to play Wilcox. My, my question is, being a defensive-minded head coach, how does that affect how you kind of, you know, how these guys are thinking about other defensive-minded head coaches? So when, you know, Wilcox plays Aranda or Patterson plays, uh, Patterson plays Wilcox or vice versa, you know, all the way around, how are these guys saying, I'm, or, or to what extent are these guys saying, I know what you're trying to do? And I'm going to talk to my offensive coordinator and in our game planning, we're going to specifically mess with your rules. Um, is there a lot of that going on? Are these guys familiar with each other's systems and kind of playing off each other? I know there's always, we don't, we, you know, we, we want to score points on Baylor to stick it to another defensive guy, but how much of these guys specifically saying, I know, I know what you're going to try and do. And I know I'm going to get my fingers in there and mess with it. Um, it depends on how much familiarity the defensive coaches have with each other. So if um, we're talking about Wilcox and Aranda, um, you know, I definitely do feel like if they play the game against each other, they're walking over to the respective offensive coordinators and saying, hey, by the way, there are these weaknesses here. If they're running a bunch of this stuff, this is going to be something you'll want to target. Um, when it comes to defensive coaches from different schools, I don't know how much of a difference it actually ends up making. Um, that is to say, hey, if, um, let's say, a Nick Saban is going up against another defensive minded coach, does it really make much of a difference in terms of what he's telling the OC? Um, well, if he's familiar with that system, like it's Kirby Smart on the other side, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, he's telling him absolutely everything. He's spilling the beans. But on the other hand, if he's going up against, you know, just broadly speaking, conceptually speaking, Dave uh, Arondas, and he's just not as familiar with it, no, he's just going to go over and basically be like, I think they're generally trying to do this, but I don't know. You figure out what works best. 
Um, so yeah, when they're really familiar, oh yeah, absolutely. They will hammer it home with their offensive coordinator in terms of game planning. But that's, it's not always the case that they, I guess, have a high degree of familiarity with their opponent in that regard. Um, but since Patterson's system has been around for such a long time, I would be surprised if individuals like Dave Aranda and Justin Wilcox wouldn't at least have a general familiarity and be able to communicate that, uh, some of the ideas to uh, their OCs. How much of a difference it's going to make since, you know, Gary Patterson kind of can switch things up on the fly? I don't know. Um, but it might make a little bit more of a difference if Gary Patterson's got a really good familiarity, took an offseason to really study Dave Aranda. Yeah, that could definitely make a difference in terms of their ability to exploit Baylor's defense in that situation, um, at least in my mind. Uh, but I don't know whether or not he's actually done that um, at all. I mean, he may have, but I don't know. Um, I sometimes get the impression that uh, he's just a little bit really just focused on, like, his players, his system, and his stuff. Um, and not, not that he's like, suggest he's proud or arrogant or something like that. He's just more, hey, if I focus on my stuff, we're going to be fine. If I get distracted by what the other guys are doing, um, maybe we're just not going to do as well. Um, it's more like point of emphasis than anything else. Yeah. hope that yeah. makes sense. No, interesting. Um, Karen, this has been this has been a wealth of information, and people can go read the article I got sent out today on the Purple Theory Substack with with some diagrams and just kind of crystallizing some of this that we've talked about. Um, Cameron, uh, before you go, uh, the one question we do ask everyone uh, as we're leading up to the season: Can you give me your your four most fun playoff teams? Who do you most want to see in the playoff uh, college football playoff this fall? Who do I most want to see in the playoffs? That, that's plausible. Like, you can't say UMass. Like, that's not happening. But, you know, a plausible team. Wow, that's a good question. Um, okay. What, what would be the most fun four teams? Um, you can say one, I don't want Alabama there. Because that's just, I think, feel like that's going to ruin the fun. I would like to see Georgia back in it, at least having a, a shot at it. Um, you know, uh, I think having Clemson in it isn't necessarily a bad thing. I would love to see Cincinnati in the playoff. I think that that would be awesome and fantastic. Will they get there? Will the playoff committee actually allow a group of five teams to get in? No. Probably not. <laughs> But it'd be really cool, and it's I think that would plausible. be amazingly fun. Yeah, I think that would be tremendously fun. Um, and then, I even though they are my team's rival, I think it would be really fun to see USC in the playoff as well, um, just because they have not, you know, reached that level of promise in a while. And so, I think it would create a really fun storyline, even if that probably means that USC kicked Notre Dame's butt in the process. But it would be fun. <laughs> Life is, life is full of trade-offs. Sometimes you got to give up a little fun for, uh, or you got to give up a win for a little fun. Um, that's, that's great. Cameron, where, where can people find your work, find your book and, and kind of follow along with you best? Yeah. So you can find me, uh, at Cameron Sworn on Twitter and, uh, there I've got a pin tweet that actually has a link to my book. And then, um, 
at least four of my articles, um, one on Nick Saban, past coverages, another one on Brent Venables, another one on Kirby Smart, and another one on Rondo Wilcox. Then, of course, there's a recent article that's coming out on the Purple Theory Substack as well. And that, that one. So that's where you can find my stuff. Um, and yeah, that's pretty much it. Awesome. Well, we'll link to Twitter and to the book in the show notes so people can find it. Um, Cameron uh, Saran has been our, our, our guest tonight talking about defense and Patterson and Aranda. We've enjoyed it so much. Thanks for your time, man. We really appreciate it. Thanks, dude. Happy to be here, Don, tonight. Thank you.